Yes. Welcome to the 29th Datavites, Getting Things Done with Data and Government, supported this month by Plowshare. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and apparently at serious risk of being replaced by a PowerPoint slide. After that unusual start, let's start in the usual way. If you've been to Databytes before, hands up. <laughs> Welcome back. Hands down. And if this is your first time at Databytes, hands up. Welcome. You're probably wondering what on earth you've let yourself in for. But don't worry, a Databytes event is a lot like Star Wars. You have to sit through a questionable prequel before you get to the good stuff. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live streamed, obviously. For those of you on social media, it's hashtag IFGDatabytes, and we are live tweeting from at IFG events. If you're here in the building, the network is IFG Internet Hotspot, password institute123. And I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb29. And if you're here at the IFG, you can put your hands up. You may well be wondering why you're here. Well, Databytes aims to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record that we can all learn from. If you're wondering how Databytes works, well, you're going to see four presentations about different data projects this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 29th data byte, so you can watch the previous 28, including last month's, on the IFG website. Well, since we last met, it's been another spectacularly unedifying month in British politics. Partygate was back on the agenda, and yet again, the only resignation came from someone who was nowhere near any of the parties. Justice Minister Lord Wolfson became the 16th minister to resign outside a reshuffle under Boris Johnson. There was renewed speculation about the PM's future. You can see he's already served longer than two post-war prime ministers, but he'll need to make it to Databytes next month to beat Gordon Brown, and then the end of August to overtake Theresa May and Jim Callaghan. And there's been a renewed focus on just how bad a workplace Parliament is, as Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner was subjected to the male gaze. The Tories suspended an MP amid allegations about his conduct. A Labour MP was suspended from Parliament for bullying. Cabinet and shadow Cabinet ministers were revealed to be the subjects of complaints. And two by-elections were triggered after one Tory MP was convicted of sexual assault and another found watching porn in Parliament. What better moment for our Deputy Director, Dr Hannah White, to launch a book on what's wrong with the Commons? You can watch last night's launch event on the IFG website. And the IFG website over the next few days will have analysis of the impact of all of that on the local elections and analysis of the elections to Stormont, those results being the second most anticipated thing to come out of Northern Ireland this week after last night's episode of Dairy Girls. <laughs> But let's forget the challenges of our political universe for a moment and turn again to the light relief of a galaxy far, far away where dictatorships dominate and planets are destroyed at will. For there is much in common between the governance of our world and of the Star Wars universe. I've previously argued on the 2020 IFG Christmas podcast with playwright James Graham, no less, that like us, the Star Wars universe suffers from a catastrophic failure of knowledge and information management. 
There's a level of staff turnover that would make the civil service blush, and such an aversion to openness that vital information is hidden behind extensive shields on obscure planets, although that's actually me trying to use freedom of information to get something out of cabinet office. So bad is the situation in Star Wars that the Ewoks may be right, that the only thing that can translate between different systems is, in fact, a god. For a more balanced view, I'd recommend a blog post on Star Wars and standards from former Databytes presenter Terence Eden, who argues that R2-D2's ability to play data tapes from anywhere actually shows impressive intergalactic compatibility. Keep an eye on Twitter for links to all of that. There are other similarities between our politics and Star Wars. There's the unexpected importance, dare I say even excitement, of trade. There are government megaprojects going wrong. There's failing to learn the lessons of government megaprojects going wrong. There's continuing to fail to learn the lesson of government megaprojects going wrong. And of course, both universes have their enigmatic, controversial gurus with a very distinctive way with words. Now, it may be Star Wars Day today, but the theme for this evening's Databytes actually recalls a different film franchise and TV series, Mission Possible, getting the right data to the right people with the right permissions to inform and act. Tonight's event, supported by Plowshare, is a first for us, focusing as it does on cyber and defence. These are issues which have, of course, been brought to the fore by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but we hope that public servants and others from all sectors will find plenty to think about and learn from in tonight's presentations. First, we'll hear from Mark Darbin, Principal Scientist at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory on a Ministry, defense approach, ministry of Defence approach to sharing the right data at the right time through information-based security architecture. Then virtually, we'll be hearing from Andrew Garner, Lead Security Architect at UK MOD Strategic Command, CAP C4I Star, on communicating and sharing information securely with partners within mission partner environments using data-centric security aligned to zero-trust architecture principles. Also virtual, we'll hear from Andrew Reid, Systems Engineer at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, with a case study on sharing intelligence data within NATO. And our final speaker of the evening back here in the building will be Wendy Griffiths, Product Manager at Tarian Technology, on how to eradicate the cyber threat using data-centric security. Our next Data Bytes will take place on Wednesday the 8th of June. Notes that's the second Wednesday of the month rather than our usual first. You'll be pleased to hear I'm not aware of any major film franchise being celebrated on that day. And then the 6th of July before we take a break for August. A big thank you to Plowshare for supporting tonight's event. We're only able to keep Data Bytes going thanks to the support of sponsors. If you would like to follow Plowshare's excellent example, then please contact my colleague Pratesh. And if you would like to speak or know someone else who should, then please get in touch with me. That's more than enough Star Wars-related introduction from me. Uh, let's hand over to our first speaker. That's Mark. Thank you, Gavin. Right. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. As been said previously, I'm Mark Darbin. I'm the principal scientist at DSTL. For those of you who don't know, DSTL is the Defence Science and Technology Laboratories. We've got about 4,000 people, and we work across mainly two sites, which is Portland Down and Portsmouth. Um, we do various lots of um, different research for the MOD, working with industry and academia, and we also work with um, other government departments as well. Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about some of the work that we've been doing over the past three or four years, um, which is data-centric security, and within DSTL, this was done as part of the information-based security approach, which is where 
Ipsa comes from. Um, as you said for us previously, four presentations. What I'm really going to give you is the research part of it, which kicked this off, and then we hand over to Andrew Gardner and the other Andrew who are looking at what are coming in as real-world examples of using this, and then um, finally Wendy's going to talk about the industry side of things and plowshare. So hopefully, so um, so why are we here? Really, I guess. Um, Information sharing. I, I, I think that as far as the, the government concerns and the MOD concerns, we, we're slightly different on the way we look at information. We have to share information. But I believe we have some common goals. And I think this was best um, well summed up by Alison Pritchard um, in the last Data Bytes, who said she was looking at data sharing, data availability, and data accountability. So I thought, great, that's kind of what we're looking at as well. So how does this work and where are the commonalities? Um, I'm going to look at this first from an MOD point of view. Um, and this is the, an example that we're using at the moment to, 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 to continue this research. And in this particular case, we've got Central Command up the top there, uh, UK Strategic Command, and they are looking and sharing information with NATO. The NATO system they're looking at is hosted by the Americans, and they have up to 30 different systems which they have to um, administer to share information across. And that is what's called a mission partner environment. Okay? And I mentioned that at the start because that's what Andrew Garn is going to talk about next time. So that moves into that. Um, looking at how this might go from here, um, I'm afraid some of the colours have gone on here, actually, so I apologise for that. Um, in this case, we've got an operational network. In the operational network, we've got a deployed system um, at the top there, large system in Helmand. Um, that goes down to a battle group below that. Um, and in, in some situations, that battle group could be deployed from a ship. So right away, we've got um, a fairly complex organisation there. Um, we've got sensors coming in, and down the bottom here, we've got other NATO nations. So as well as information for NATO coming at the top there, it's coming in from the side. And we could have a case where you've got embedded UK troops down there coming back through the NATO network. This is compounded even further um, by a tactical network underneath that, which has got denied and degraded environments, um, and we'll begin to see troops on there. And, and there'll be information going up, there'll be sensors there going up from there as well. And up the top there, we've got an NGO, so we're going out to civilian things. So we've got a lot of information there, we need to make sure the UK stuff stays on the UK eyes, um, the five eyes stays with the five eyes, and we only give the right information out to NGOs. How will this apply to you? Um, well, this is a map of the Ministry of Justice, which was done in a study. On, on the left-hand side, um, the system where the, where the, where the, where the, the diagram, where the um, bubbles are, um, it takes the system through from um, the, the prevention of crime all the way through for the policing, the, um, the, the, um, the courts, um, prison, and the, um, I think we're looking for parole on the other end there. And you've got the various actors around that. The important thing is, is that, okay, and that is a mapping of the data exchange landscape um, of the information which is moving across. So the point I'm trying to make here is you might think that we're doing something very different from you, but in some ways the requirements are all the same, which is trying to get the right information to the right person at the right time. So what's data centric security? How can that help you? We believe this is a tool, which, which, a technical tool, which could be used to, to, to help you to do this. Um, and we're looking at information that's protected based on what it contains rather than where it's located. So we're not looking at network systems where you've got a network, you've got a, um, a perimeter on the network, you log in and give or take, you can normally move around the network and get what you want. We're looking at actually defending things with data objects. So what do we do, what do we mean by data objects? Um, in this case, we've got some information and we're going to drive some metadata from that information. And then using various encryption techniques, 
we can actually um, secure the information in terms of confidentiality. Um, the information in the metadata itself is encrypted so that people can't see it. And also we provide um, a cryptographic binding, which is Z1 there, around the outside. What this done, it's like a checksum with a crypto in it, and it means that we can actually um, make sure that the information and the metadata has not been changed, that the labels are correct, which gives you trusted labeling, um, and, the, yeah, and the whole thing hasn't been um, altered. Okay? So that, from our end, is how we would secure information. And once it's secured, it means that you can move it around the system, it can be protected um, at rest and in transit up to the, till the point when someone needs to access it. How will that work? How long have I got? Um, this is an example here of the foreign HQ on the left there. Um, someone from there wants to be able to view that object on the right. Um, in this case, the metadata needs to be unencrypted, but the information itself remains encrypted. You can check the bindings correctly, and then you've got an attribute-based access control system in there, which will ba um, basically look at the attributes of the guy himself, along with the metadata. Um, in there could be other things as well as, as clearance. You could also have in there the location of him, the system he's on, this sort of thing. That's logged. Um, and if it's correct, you've got the right attributes, you can move it across. The other advantage of this is, is, is if you want to change the access to that object. In our case, for example, you'd have something which is mission secret, um, which means that as the battle goes on, you might want to release it to someone. Um, if the fact you're attacking a hill is secret, it isn't secret once the, the, the soldiers are running up the side of it. So you might want to decrease the, um, the, the, um, the, the, the confidentiality of that. And you can do that using this system. Um, this gives you, we believe, as I say, information protected based on what it contains. Um, on our side, it's data confidentiality, integrity, trusted labelling, dynamic access control and audit. And on the right-hand side, this goes back to what was originally said, which is we've got data, sent, um, data sharing, um, we've got availability and data accountability. Okay? So I think, moving on to the next one, uh, I'm going to move through that one. Right. So in summing up on this, quicker than I thought, actually. Um, where we are with this, DSTL, the information-based security approach, we deal with uh, research up to what's called TRO level six, which is a concept demonstrator which shows how something could be done in a representative environment. That's as far as we've got. At the moment, we're looking at that in a corporate environment or, or, or et cetera. Um, and what we built, it was a concept demonstrator to show how this would work, to show that you could reasonably do encryption, that you could reasonably move stuff around a network and with all the encryption and the metadata and all that, it wouldn't ch choke the network and it would run on, 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 on a laptop or a PC. And there are other NATO systems out there. NATO's quite into this at the moment. Um, there's a lot of push to do it from NATO and we've been doing lots of work with NATO in terms of interoperability to make sure we can move between one system and another. So as far as it goes from the concept level, we, we, we've, we've done quite a lot of testing on this. Okay? Um, one thing that's come out of that um, is um, we did some work with the US um, a couple of years ago, in fact, a couple of years ago and last year, and the US have now come on board with this, and they said they are going to be putting one of these live um, at the end of this year or next year. And UK Stratcom are working with them to actually put a mission partner environment in place. Okay. And that's what Andrew Garner is going to talk to you about next. Um, as well as this, we've got the plowshare side of things. Um, all of the work we've done is under mod 703, which means that we own it, which means that because we own it, we, 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 we can actually give it out to people, you know, license it. Um, and we've done that under plowshare, which is why Wendy's here and why we're being um, sponsored by plowshare tonight. And finally, we're continuing with some of the research as well. Um, in this case, you've got um, 
um, one of the other people in our in our in DSTL is looking at putting this in what's called a coalition shared database, um, and that's what Andrew Reid's going to talk to you about. Finally, eleven seconds. <laughs> Sorry if I spoke a bit quickly. When I did it early, it was coming in at just about eight and a half minutes. So anyway, um, that that's it. I think. Perfect. So thank, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much, Mark. So in a moment, I'll come to the room uh, for the first question. Do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Though do remember we're on the record. And we will start the timer when you start asking the first question. So please do keep them nice and short and crisp. If you're watching us online, remember you can submit your questions to all of our speakers using Slido. If you're not already on Slido, it's bit.ly slash slidodv29. So who would like to ask Mark the first question? No questions. There's plenty to ask questions about in all of that. We've got the first question at the back. Hello, hi, I'm Philippa from the Home Office. In reality, what does data accountability look like in this model? Maybe you could say somebody gets access to something they shouldn't, or you might tell me that would never happen. But in the worst case, um, how does it actually operate? Yeah, so... so if the system is correctly, it's set up correctly, then, then people shouldn't get access to information that they're not allowed to have access to because that's the whole idea of, of, of doing this, is, is, is providing some sort of access controls around the systems. However, as you rightly said, um, no system is 100% secure. Um, I guess what this would give you, it gives you an audit trail of, of, of the system itself. So if someone accessed a, a, a system using an, another pe person's credentials, etc., you could actually show where, they, where they've done that. Um, you could also, through dynamically access control systems, you could close down that access quite quickly uh, as well. Um, so it, it, it would assist you. Um, and, I, and I feel, bearing in mind, this is, the intention of this is not that it actually is a replacement security mechanism. It is meant to be a mechanism which sits around your, your, your current controls so it should enhance whatever controls you've got in place at the moment. Excellent, thank you. Um, we'll go online for the next question, which is from Tom King. Evening to you, Tom. How does all of this fit with the integrated review? Right. <laughs> right, the integrated review. So we are currently... So Defence Digital ha have, have stated that Moving ahead, all of the systems that um, come on uh, are coming in should look at zero trust and data, data centric security as part of the routine as putting them going. So, so the MOD itself has signed up to this. Um, and one thing I didn't mention from the time scales is the fact that DCS actually provides quite a few of the tenants of a zero trust architecture, which is why we're pushing it. Um, moving ahead, um, we have got, in, in terms of DSTL, we've got quite a bit of work going on now to, to move this ahead. We've not stopped with this, um, and what we've been asked now um, from Stratcom and from, from whatever is to look at denied and degraded environments, because that obviously could, could have a big problem, could have a, a big impact on there. Um, a Stratcom, the question from Stratcom was, um, can we put this in a tent? And if we can put it in a tent, should we put it in a tent? So bearing in mind, we're not... We're not peddling this 
in terms of this is a wonderful, fantastic thing. You should do this everywhere. Um, we realise that this is a, a tool that you can, you can use, and we will, and in particular going down to degraded environments and to the, um, to, um, to the tactical space, we are going to have to ask the question about how far you would actually move it down there and at what point we might find that actually you know, the, the, um, the advantages are, are, are not um, worth it given what you have to do on the network itself. Excellent. Okay. Thanks. Um, if you're watching us online, do keep your questions coming in via Slido, but I'm going to come back to the room now. Uh, does anyone have a question? Yes. Paul from the Department of Leveling Up. Um, so what are the trade-offs? What's hard? Is it with the compute power for the extra encryption? Is it the complexity of the rules? Is there novel technology? Um, don't, it shouldn't be the compute power from the, from, from the, um, the system. We put it onto um, a C-Disk server, which is designed to, 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 to support 20, no, about 30 to 50 troops. Um, we had um, 1,000 people on there with 500 concurrent users, and it got slow, as you probably imagine, but it didn't fall over. No catastrophic result, it came back up. Um, as you say, there are always trade-offs in this. Um, Data-centric systems themselves do rely on a number of supporting services, um, like, like, like the IDAM system, um, possibly a content management system if you're going to go down that route. However, these are things which should be in a system already, but might not be. Um, it also requires on a common data, metadata standard, so that, uh, I don't know, Department of Justice you know, what, 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 a, what a policeman calls a prisoner, the, um, the, the, the parole officer calls a prisoner because it might not happen. So you've got to have a, 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 one of the things we're looking at at the moment is, is from our end is a, a constant, uh, is, a, is a, um, a sort of comprehensive metadata schemas which would, which would be able to use um, at the corporate end and, and move it down the system, possibly stripping stuff out as you go down. So that's the thing. Um, and obviously, from the management point of view, um, the IDAM system has to be set up correctly, the metadata has to be correct. So it, I, I, I personally think it's going to be more of a, a management problem. In terms of the encryption itself, um, you don't have to do it all. Um, NATO has designed three levels, um, and, and we're using those as well. And effectively, you could have um, labeling, but no encryption at all, if you really wanted to trust the rest of the system to provide it. You could have um, labeling with the, um, uh, the integrity thing around the outside, or you could have just the data and not the metadata. So you, 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 could, you, could, you can mix and match on this. Yeah, this and that. Um, but we did it in terms of, of being um, in, um, the type of encryption agnostic to it. So the system we worked out had a crypto in it, but, but we're not here to, to, um, to, to design crypto systems. Um, the idea was, was you could put anyone in. And also in terms of the actual um, standards you use within the system itself, um, we use a thing called trusted data format um, within the, the system itself. However, NATO uses 4774, a thing called standard 4774, 4778. Um, so we've been provided um, with a number of um, translators which you can bolt onto the outside of it. So if you had to go beto between us and another standard, you could do it. Yeah. So does that hopefully answer the question? Yeah. Great, thanks. Um, since there are so many of us here in the room, I'm going to come to the room for the next question again. So any more questions? No more questions. 
in which case I have one. <laughs> um, you were sort of talking about the importance of consistency and standards of metadata, and obviously you've already been asked about the integrated review. But how does all of this play into all of the other sort of government initiatives around data, the CDDO, the Data Standards Authority, the National Data, National data Strategy? Yeah, um, I must admit we've been focused on the on, on, on the MOD side of things and, and getting up and getting a person to, to, to pick up that, which we've now got, which is fantastic. As with all these things, and I think, where's Guy? Um, Guy there, who, who's, who's been knocking on people's doors for a while um, to get them interested in that, and, and I don't know, he might have more to say about that than me later on, but, but, but certainly um, we get lots of interest on this, lots of people going, yeah, but actually finding someone to pick it up, because it's, it's quite an undertaking, which is why I'm saying here it's a tool we could use um, with other systems. It will map over to, to, to the stuff you've got. Um, one of the things I haven't mentioned here that you can do with, with these objects is you can start embedded objects within each other. So, so rather than just having an object, you could, for example, have, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm talking slightly out of my league here, out of my ear, but um, if you had a record with a prisoner, you could have the, the prisoner's record in there. You could have, you could link that to the... Um, um, defences and the prosecution, but you could actually make it so that the defence couldn't see the prosecution, or they could, or the other, and, and, and the judge, etc., and things like that. So, so I think it will map across to things like that. It, I think we'd also map across to the medical side of things, except where, etc., where you've got patients' records, and you might want um, different different um, aspects of people's records um, for different people to be able to see. So, I think it will map across. It's just um, making that mental leap from what we've got, which is where we're looking mainly at the security and the confidentiality of the system. Um, I would imagine you're looking at that, but that's not your driver. Your driver is probably going to be trusted labelling and the right people seeing the right information. So it can be done. It's just making that leap of imagination. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So our second speaker this evening is Andrew Garner, who hopefully is going to be uh, joining us virtually and should appear on the screen any moment now. Good evening to you, Andrew. Good evening, everyone. Excellent. Um, ready to begin whenever you are. Wonderful. You can see my uh, screen, hopefully. We can indeed. We can see your slides perfectly. Excellent. So, so no Star Wars theme, I'm afraid, but uh, I can provide a disembodied voice. Uh, so, uh, so I'm Andrew Garner, um, and uh, I'm here from uh, UKMOD Strategic Command, and uh, I'm going to talk about mission partner environments, zero trust architecture, and data centricity within a de defence context. Plenty of acronyms to confuse there. Uh, and, and thank you also to Mark for the, for the excellent sort of scene setter and lead in there. It really sort of uh, couldn't have arranged it better. Uh, so. As I say, uh, my name is Andrew Garner. I'm a lead security architect working for our MOD, uh, a defense contractor working on behalf of SixWorks, uh, a, uh, an independent IT consultancy in the defense and security sector, uh, specializing in innovation and experimentation. Uh, our current work is uh, to that end in capability development as opposed to capability deliver delivery. And really the development process is uh, to experiment, provide lessons learned, then inform programs of, of delivery. Uh, I have 25 plus years of experience in the public sector in infrastructure design and delivery with some of the clients you can see there. And my focus really is on interoperability, cross domain, zero trust and data centricity. Uh, a little bit there on six works. I won't dwell on this one. I'm sure the slides will be shared afterwards, but you, you can read about who we are and what we do there. 
Uh, so mission partner environments then, what are they? Uh, a defence context. Um, so a mission partner really, it, it's a partner nation or organisational component of undertaking a mission with a partner nation or organisation or component, so partners together across multiple domains, MOD, allies, combatant commands such as CENCOM and coalitions such as Five Eyes and NATO and, and some examples of, of what a mission you know, it, it is there and we'll be familiar with, with those I'm sure. Uh, so, so MPEs really are systems to enable mission partners to collaborate and, and they provide services to enable effective collaboration such as you know, mail, chat, file share, the usual suspects uh, alongside sort of mission applications and uh, they're really sort of logistic planning and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and we sort of design these systems to, to specifications and the ones that sort of guide us from a UK perspective are NATO specifications and they enable day zero interoperability. Really that's about hardwiring interoperability into capability so that when we when we come to connect to partners uh, systems, we're not faced with challenges that we might have been faced with in the past and are trying to work out how we interoperate. And really the point of all this is to improve information sharing, to share at the speed of relevance, to, to give us that sort of advantage in terms of information. So the current situation in terms of mission partner environments, and this is from a US perspective, and uh, I, I use this graphic because I think it represents a challenge we're trying to address well. And, and you can see here, this is mission partner environments from a US DOD perspective, and they've got circa 55 bilateral and multilateral systems and networks, and they obviously have associated cost to deliver and maintain them. And really the environment has evolved to this position for a number of reasons, but a principal cause, as you'll understand, is security concern and the associated requirement for separation of data. Uh, data centricity affords us a means to collapse these environments into a single information environment, improving information access and sharing, and then ultimately reducing those costs while not compromising on security. So you can see you know, here that it's a fairly complex uh, situation. So what's the future of this, uh, this, this, this environment? Uh, and again, from a US perspective, and really you know, a common sort of uh, approach really is to, to have cloud adoption. And, uh, this is depicting the Sabre environment, secret and below releasable environment, and uh, you can see a number of clouds there in the middle. And really, this this graphic is depicting their journey from a core private cloud across government into commercial cloud, federating with partners and hosting and federating with combatant commands within the US. Really, and really, this is trying to get across that they're trying to collapse it all into a single information environment. So, how do we get there? The current approaches that we have from a network centric approach as opposed to data centric impacts information sharing, whether you're using cross domain approaches, guards, et cetera, it impacts the speed of which we can share. And we need to collapse those environments to create a single information environment, as I said. If we utilize zero trust architecture principles, designing secure, robust, and flexible systems, and removing the reliance on a traditional walled garden approach to security, i.e., you know, protecting at our boundaries with firewalls, and bring that perimeter closer to the data, put the protection with the data. Uh, and then we use applications um, and security enforcement controls at the data level rather than the network level, moving from net centric to data centric. And that provides the means to sufficiently protect those data objects as Mark was talking about and enables us to, to allow them to be transported and stored anywhere. We're not as concerned as we might have been when sharing them. And it ultimately enables our journey to, to cloud adoption, which, you know, for MOD and, and for sort of, you know, numbers of uh, aspects of government is a, is a challenging prospect when we're no longer custodians of our data. So from a UK perspective then for, for MP, what are we doing? Well, we're creating a defense zero trust DCS enabled exemplar, really trying to set down a pattern for how to do this, combining DCS and zero trust to enable collaboration. And, and really this graphic here is showing you some of the pillars uh, of zero trust that the master has spoke about, combined with a data centric approach. We utilize a building block approach in terms of sort of designing the system, 
pre-core sort of building blocks, zero trust uh, from an infrastructure perspective, and probably important to get across, zero trust, it's not something you can go out and buy, it's a concept, it's an approach, uh, it's not a technology. It's really about a new perimeter, putting that protection closer to data and services. We take an assumed breach mentality, and what we mean by that is we, we assume that our systems, our networks have been breached by our adversaries. And we verify then every connection, every transaction within the environment, policy enforcement everywhere. And I include some of the sort of NCSC sort of guiding principles around zero trust here to, to help to sort of, you know, guide, you know, our, our approach to design here. And again, I won't dwell on these, they'll be there in the deck for, for you to look at should you want to. The second building block then really is about uh, attribute based access control ABAC. Traditional approaches would have been focused on RBAC, role based access control, which is a broad, coarse grained approach to access control. ABAC is a much finer grained approach. We can utilize attributes of identity and attributes of data to then make assertions and calculations against access using policy enforcement to make those decisions and calculations in terms of allowing or denying access. The third building block is data centricity. And really, this is about sort of taking those controls within the infrastructure layer from the zero trust perspective, the data centric ABAC access control approach, and utilizing encrypted objects, bound cryptographically metadata to then make those assertions in terms of access, but only um, providing data to those that are uh, allowed to access it, but also have the right um, decryption uh, capabilities to then actually work with it and view it. So we take those building blocks and that really allows us to collect into a single information environment and allows us to build dynamic communities of interest. That, that graphic that I showed before with the 55 plus networks, really what we're talking about here, you can see here, there's probably about four or five of those networks here represented. A, a community of interest is a coalition of partners, for example, Firewise or NATO. And really that's about what we're trying to do is collapse these uh, communities of interest into a single environment where we can have them all and protect them appropriately. So real world then in terms of uh, moving from, uh, from the research, the implementation, we took part in a, uh, an exercise last year called the Mission Partner Interoperability Initiative with partners in the US and the UK. And that was really a demonstration of this approach, utilizing data centricity with a number of participants that you can see there. And we were able to you know, exploit uh, the, uh, the data centricity, utilize it to protect our data and share it alongside ABAT to control access to, uh, to data and, uh, and services. Uh, the, the research output that Mark spoke about in terms of the IPSA, the excellent uh, output from that exercise has allowed us to, to engage in this DCS journey and, and uh, exploit that capability and exchange um, the protected objects with, with colleagues in the US. Very successful demonstration of that. But now moving into the real world, you know, obviously uh, we want to adopt COTS capability um, uh, from, from vendors and we're working with a vendor called Virtu to develop that capability. Uh, as are um, the first US combatant command to do so, uh, CENTCOM, uh, who, who are going operational with their capability uh, early part of next year. But really the focus, you know, in moving this forward is about developing and utilizing open standards. So we're not sort of locked into an approach and we have interoperability baked in. Uh, so some of the principles then, a few there, standardized labels, marking and common naming schemes, tagging all the data, binding it cryptographically, and utilizing those attributes to make assertions. And, and the key point here is DCS goes beyond DRM. Mark showed this graphic previously in terms of the concept. To the right, you actually see it implementation, implemented in a file construct, the TDF. And some of the key takeaways I'll leave you with, tagging and marking all data, common data standards, promoting culture changes to why we're doing it. And really DCS is about placing that protection with the data.
Thank you. Afraid I went over a little there, but. Uh... It's all right. Excellent, and hopefully we will see Andrew's face appear shortly. Um, I'll come to the room second for questions this time, so do you think about what you'd like to put to Andrew. Um, and again, if you're online, thank you for the questions so far. Do keep them coming in via Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb29 if you're not already on the right page. So, um, Andrew, first question um, from online. Um, I think in keeping with the Star Wars theme, this is Sam from Endor Confidential. Good evening to you, Sam. Um, who says, the NHS, Her Majesty's Government and others are building large databases of the entire population. Are there lessons from your field of the consequences for the UK population when these highly sensitive databases inevitably leak? Well... Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all would recognise what the consequences of that leakage is or that spillage. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, putting protection there in place to prevent that is really what this work is all about. Um, you know, in, enforcing access control at a much finer grained um, level than we would normally in terms of that role based access where it's, it's very coarse. That really, I think, is key in terms of that access, but also I think utilising encryption to protect that data, should there be a spillage, then if you don't have the appropriate key material to then decrypt it and access it, then we can be somewhat um, reassured that whilst there's been a spillage, we, we've not necessarily been compromised in terms of that data being, uh, being accessed. Great, thank you. Um, let's take a question from the room. I've got a question there. Uh, Guy Woodland from Tarrant, it happens. Um, uh, looking at your introduction there, we, um, authentication in, 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 a, in this large federated environment is clearly very valuable uh, and is, I expect is going to be a very large challenge across all these different um, uh, coalitions. Uh, is, is there a role for artificial intelligence uh, uh, training schemes to be used in the authentication? Yeah, I, I, hi, hi, Guy. Um, been a while. Um, yeah, I, I think you're, you're probably spot on in, in that there is a role. I think that's it's probably more in, in the uh, the non-person entities and the person entities, I would suspect, in terms of the that approach to uh, authentication. Generally, you know, when we're talking about authentication from a user perspective, that user is going to be present. Uh, and I, I'm not sure how much AI would necessarily help us there, really, perhaps in access to wider services than, than those that they were necessarily intending to access to provide a a richer um, you know, collaboration environment, perhaps there's a role there, but I suspect it's probably more in the non-person, the, the non-human to human type authentication that, that that AI role would probably play an important part. Thanks. Um, we've got another online question. This one's from Jeremy. Um, if I'm not allowed to look at something, can I still see that it exists, for example, as a file name or as a gobbledygook encrypted file name, or is it invisible? Uh, that's a really interesting question, that one, and one that we're sort of actually working through at the moment. So, you know, different uh, implementations will have different requirements, and, and uh, trimming is, is generally the term that we would use for concealing some of that data in terms of access. So, absolutely, we can we can trim based on the attributes of the data. So, for example, if we have a, a document that's marked, you know, secret, releasable five eyes, and you're a Swedish national, then that document would not be present, not be visible to you uh, within an information management system or, or, or wherever it might reside. Equally, we can do it on sort of file, the file name, for example, if that's an approach that we want to take. So really, it depends on the exact requirement that there are certainly techniques to, to enforce that trimming and, and make sure that only the visible, the data that should be visible to that user is visible. Excellent, thanks. Um, I'm going to come back to the room again for the next question. 
Put your hands up now. We've got one there. If you just wait for the microphone, perfect. Hi, it's Dan Fitter from Public. Um, I'm just interested in which parts of the tech stack you're looking for COTS capability um, to integrate with the, uh, with the system. Uh, so I think the, the key area that we're focused in, in, in the COTS space, I mean, the, as you can imagine, there's COTS across the vast majority of this. Uh, some of it, though, is maturing and developing as we go. So in, in the ABAC space, for example, the, the pure sort of access control aspect, there's a limited number of vendors that are in the sort of on-prem type space. Within, you know, cloud, you know, there's a lot of adoption there. But, you know, as you can imagine, you know, within the vast majority of our environments, we're looking at on-prem capabilities currently. So. That capability is maturing. There is COTS capability out there, but in terms of sort of the vendors, it's, it's quite a narrow field. The, the, the key bit that we're trying to work up going forward really is moving on from the, the research output from IBSA and working with a vendor called Bertrude to develop an interoperable uh, DCS at its core uh, capability. So that's really talking about you know, encrypting the object, associating metadata with it, and then cryptographically binding that metadata to that object. It's not a capability that we, we see kind of out there within the marketplace at the moment. Um, you know, much, much of the capability is DRM focused, which doesn't really give us what we need from, from a DCS perspective, certainly in the defense scenario, and I would imagine across, across government writ large, really. So in terms of sort of, you know, the cost capability that we're really looking for at the moment, it's within that sort of that space that we're really focused at the moment. And the key is about making it interoperable as well. I mean, as I sort of mentioned in the brief, you know, we, we generally follow NATO specifications here. There's a set of specifications called the Federated Mission Networking specifications that you might be familiar with that lay out some specifications in this space. Mark sort of spoke to a couple of the standards, the standardized agreements earlier, 4774 and 4778. And that's what we would adopt, you know, moving forward. But from a US perspective, they have a completely different set of standards. So really it's about, you know, developing COTS capability that can give us that core DCS capability about the object level encryption and enforcement but also make it interoperable between those differing standards so that you know we have seamless interoperability without having to you know guess what our partner's going to what their encoding and encrypting standards going to be and having to you know to deal with it appropriately so it's getting that cost capability to deal with it at that level but also to have that translation uh, to enable interoperability is kind of the core focus at the moment for cops thanks um the next question is online and it's from anonymous <laughs> Good evening to you, Anonymous. Um, they ask, should something like Six Works really have a place in government defence? Isn't the nature of national defence such that systems should be kept strictly in-house? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a, a point that's been debated, um, you know, for, for a long time, really. I think the, the benefit of Six Works, and we, we work uh, across a number of sort of uh, partners, really, within, within government and defence, mainly focused in, into the, uh, the RAF RCO, the Rapid Capabilities Office, which is really about experimentation. And it's really about sort of bringing together sort of subject matter expertise from across, you know, government and defence uh, environments and industry, bringing them together with um, defence personnel, civil servants, uh, to, to kind of work up as a, as a rainbow team, as it's often called, you know, to, to kind of work this proposition and, and drive it forwards, really. So, yes, I absolutely feel that, you know, a company such as Sixworks, an agile uh, company focused on experimentation, really helps to kind of move this conversation forward. Because I think, you know, a point that's often, you know, missed or lost in terms of delivering, you know, capability and, and, and programs is, you need to do a bit of development work. There needs to be some experimentation to kind of to, to work out how best to achieve it. And I think, you know, SIGWORKS is really well placed to do that. And a number of successful outcomes um, and satisfied customers from the engagements today.
Thank you. And we've got time for a final quick question from the room. Put your hands up now. Otherwise, I will ask one. Um, you were talking uh, during the presentation about the sort of US-UK relationship and the US approach. How different are the different data cultures and different data approaches from different allies? Yeah, different. I think it's probably the simple answer to that. So, and that's one of the challenges that we have here really is trying to make those standards interoperable. So as I say, we, we, we generally, you know, trying to follow the NATO standards because that gives us, you know, interoperability for a wider community of, of partners. Um, the, the US, they, you know, they follow a number of standards, but in this space, it's really about the intelligence community standards that they would do, would generally follow. So really, you know, the, the challenge we have here is making those standards interoperable. Um, you know, as we share information across them. So, yes, different is the simple answer to that. Great. And uh, perfectly within the eight minutes as well. So, Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's something we've never done on Databytes before. We've gone from, we're going from one Andrew to another Andrew. Um, and hopefully Andrew Reid joins us now. Evening to you, Andrew. Good evening. Yes, my name is Andrew Reid. I'm a systems engineer at uh, DSTL. Um, Mark Darbin's asked me to talk to you about a, a recent small research task that we initiated at the beginning of the year, looking at the use of uh, DCS for, in the context of coalition shared databases. So just want to explain what a coalition shared database is, because it's, it's a slightly uh, unusual beast. Um, it's a client-server architecture that's defined by an international standard, uh, and the standard defines both how the client can search, query, and retrieve um, data from the database, and how the, C the, the CSD servers synchronize between themselves and, and maintain a synchronized catalog. So in a coalition operation, each nation would bring along a, a CSD server and a number of client terminals and they connect them together on a wide area network. And that wide area network might include a high bandwidth network if you're operating within a headquarters, or it might include some less reliable links like noisy radio links if you're out in a tent somewhere. Um, so that the system's designed to operate across that whole spectrum of, of different communications environments. Um, <clears throat> The servers can synchronize their metadata um, so that all the, all the CSDs have a catalog view of all the data available across the network. Uh, and the standardized metadata catalogs represented as a directed acyclic graph, which just means really that it's, it's easy to search and uh, doesn't have any loops in it. Um, and there's a, there's a BQS query language that allows, allows you to uh, search the metadata and set up standing queries and so forth. And the whole thing is implemented using a technology called Corba, which you, you'll probably know is, is quite long in the tooth now. And uh, well, there's, there's also a few web services in there. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's been around for quite a while, but there's an initiative uh, within NATO to, to move it to a more modern REST interface um, that, but that's going to take a little while to evolve. So when you've got your federated catalogue um, sort of synchronised across the wide area network, um, within the metadata that's, that's exchanged, there's a product reference that uh, allows you, when you find the, the bit of uh, imagery product that you want, you can then 
uh, there's an HTTP, HTTP link that allows you to pull that, that product back over the network. Uh, but you don't do that until you've actually know that it's it, it is what you want, which which reduces the the need to pull vast amounts of imagery back across the network um, that you don't need. So the CSD concept has been around for quite a while and has been used by some countries nationally, but hasn't really been used operationally in a coalition context to sort of demonstrate international interoperability. Um, so a recent experiment in Brussels on an operational network suggested that uh, the analysts were were a little reluctant to put their products into the CSD environment because they were then accessible to everybody on the network and they would prefer uh, a system that allowed them to be a bit more selective about how they shared their data. So the, the research question that we framed was, can we use data-centric security to selectively release data across the CSD network to people with us within a specific community of interest? <clears throat> so getting down into the nitty gritty, the, 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 the difficulty, the first difficulty you hit is, is if you encrypt your, your secure object and the metadata inside it, um, it's then difficult to search it. So how do how do we how do we address that? Um, <clears throat> what we did was we 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 used Mark's IPSA uh, DCS environment to to do the heavy lifting for us at the bottom end, and and we put our secure objects in there. Um, we then pulled them out into our local coalition shared database and where we could attach a security label to it to, to say who it was releasable to, and some CSD-specific metadata that gets added on at that point, and bound all that together into a bound data object, which was held locally in our, our local CSD environment. Um, at the same time, we generated uh, a metadata-only packet, which which contained the security metadata, the CSD metadata, and the, an external reference which pointed to the secure object that we just generated. And that's the thing that we shared with all the other CSDs and got, got propagated across the network. So everybody could search the metadata then through this. We could check as that metadata was flowing around that it was, it was going to the right places, the, 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 the people the, the guards that were in place across the network can interrogate the metadata and make sure it's not going going where it shouldn't. And when you've found what you want, you can use the external reference to pull back the bound data object into your remote data center security system, which might be different from IPSA. It might be something completely um, national specific, but you could pull it into there. And if you've got the right, right access um, uh, permissions, then then you'd be able to access that that bound data object, decrypt it, and and get access to the data. So the way we did that within the research environment, um, we, we 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 produced this layered structure with Mark's IBSA piece down at the bottom here, as I say, doing doing the difficult stuff, the policy decision point and the DCS management piece. We generated. Um, a fairly small 
um, DCS interface layer here in using REST interfaces, talking talking REST to um, the IPSA down here, and talking REST to a coalition shared database software up here. And the advantage of that is that a, we got, we got the benefit of all the all the previous research we'd done down here of of having a lot of existing uh, DCS stuff available, but also we 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 managed to do it without modifying this coalition shared database software very much, and um, we could <coughs> we did we didn't affect its uh, uh, we, we 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 it still maintained the standard that was was defined at this interface here. So this this diagram just shows you when when a user uploads some data, um, the upload request is is diverted by this interface layer. Metadata gets added in. It goes down into the DCS environment. It's it's um, bound a bound data object is created. That's pulled back up and then cached within the server here. So, bottom line is that uh, in a in a very short space of time, I think about two to three months, um, we we generated a proof of concept demonstration of uh, how how all of these things could be done. So we demonstrated last week to our stakeholders that we could log into to an identified identity provider and, and access user clearance credentials. We can add new products to the CSD. We could exchange secure metadata uh, only versions of, of the product metadata. And we could retrieve data files in a secure way. And we demonstrated to the, to the users how you could log into a remote CSD um, and um, <clears throat> with different IDs, you could see different products and, and pull them back. Uh, it's clearly, it's just a proof of concept, but it's it's it, there's still quite a bit of the work to do to uh, pull pull it into a mature operational system. Um, but I think it demonstrated all all the key points, and we're going to be presenting it next week to uh, NATO at a working group meeting uh, next next Monday. So that's that's it from me. I don't know how I'm doing on time, but uh... Uh, just over eight minutes. So pretty much bang on, Andrew. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'll come to the room first again for questions this time around. If you are watching us online, remember you can use Slido to put your questions to Andrew. And if you're already if you're not already on the right page, it's bit.ly slash Slido db. Um, let's go to the room for the first question. And we've got one down here. Uh, Tom Coates, OCSA. Could you say a little bit more about the uh, filtering by clearance labels? Sorry, filtering by? Clearance labels. Uh, so okay. sorry, your slide had a structure where the user authenticated, and then based on that, I believe that what metadata they could search for was modified, is that right? Yes, so um, NATO, as, as Mark mentioned earlier on, NATO, there's a couple of NATO standards which define the, the security labeling that you, you, you should attach to the, such products. And um, uh, we, we've embodied that, that follow, followed that NATO plan. Um, and and the labelings basically s s tell you the classification of of the data. It tells you who who it's releasable to. And um, 
that the philosophy is that uh, as as the data moves through the network, you can check the, the, its releasability and and its classification as it as it moves around the network, and you, it gives you the opportunity when it gets to the to the end if the user doesn't have the appropriate um, clearance, then then you don't a you can not not show them that the data exists or b he, he might know that it exists but you, he's, he's not allowed to access it um so so there are there are options as as andrew garner mentioned earlier as to how you play that but if that answers your question excellent thanks um we've got a question online from james marmont of the excel group would this allow the NHS to share patient history and treatment data readily and easily across NHS trusts and hospitals? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think it certainly could, um, but it, it's obviously quite implement, implementation specific. Um, the, 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 the system I'm describing here is very um, bespoke to the, the, um, the application of imagery intelligence and being able to manage imagery products. Um, so it's, it's, it's more um, appropriate to, you know, like if you were going to share, share x-rays and things like that, it might be, it might be useful in that context. Um, it's 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 not a, a very general purpose database, um, but um, you know all all the all the things that Mark's talked about um, are very applicable to more general purpose databases as well, and so it's all possible. But um, it, it it you know the d domain specific aspects of things need to be carefully thought about. The use cases need to be developed, and you need to work out exactly what what you want it to do and who you want to share with. Excellent, thank you. Um, I'll come back to the room for the next questions. Put your hand up if you have a question for Andrew. I've uh, got another one down here. Hi, hi. I'm not technical at all, so sorry if this uh, doesn't make sense, but I was just struck that you talked a lot about data sharing uh, as opposed to sort of data access or federated um, or decentralized systems. Does that does it increase risk in terms of honeypots of data, cyber risk, although not everyone can access it? I was just struck that a lot of the language I hear in government is around data access and using emerging technologies to create patterns and insights as opposed to the actual raw data, which seems to be what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I guess um, my environment that, that we're working in is, is slightly Different from from um, the the more run of the mill environment because <clears throat> we're not we're not connected to the internet. Um, we're op operating in a, a secret domain generally, running at system high secret. Um, so um, everybody that's connected to the network has has a right to be connected to it, uh, unless they you know something disastrous has gone wrong, like somebody's captured one of your terminals or something. Um, so, uh, it, my, my problem was really about sharing rather than access control. Um, so, so I, I recognize that, that if you're connected to the internet, then access control is sort of like the big problem. Um, but we, we, we control that problem a bit by just making sure that 
our, our networks are not connected to the, the rest of the world. Um, Great, thank you. Um, I'll go online for the next question. Uh, so this is from Anonymous, um, who hopes these questions are not too dumb. They definitely aren't. Um, they ask, is an audit trail created of all accesses? Is there alerting of any access outside valid credentials, if that can indeed happen? And how frequently do credentials change? And how is that change managed to ensure no unauthorised access? Well, the answer to the first few questions is yes, absolutely. I think the, the, there's always going to be an audit trail, and that's that's absolutely fundamental to most of the systems that we operate with. Um, the, 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 uh, the second part of the question was, I can't um, remember. So if, if there'd been um, access outside sort of verified credentials. Right. And how um, credentials change as well. Yeah. Yeah, how often credentials change? That was the other part I was I was thinking about. I mean that that's that's going to be very specific to your 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 particular system or or use case, and then, you know even in, in all the systems that we work with in the MOD, um, different systems will have different requirements, um, and, and you know it just needs to be as good as you need it to be, doesn't it? Uh, so so that's that's very domain specific. Um, but yeah, audit logs and you know records of of any intrusion um, uh, would are absolutely essential in in our environment and uh, would would need to be maintained quite carefully. Thanks. Do we have a quick final question from the room? I do have one online that I can go to as well. Anyone in the room got anything to ask? In which case, um, we have another question from Anonymous online. I don't know if it's the same Anonymous or a different Anonymous. Uh, but how important is ease of use when designing these sorts of systems? Very important. And uh, it's something that we haven't always got, got right, I think. Uh, I think, um, you know, <coughs> the, the, this system that we're working with, this, this coalition shared database system, has been... been Around for a while, and, and and probably would have been better adopted if it had been easier to use. So the, the the problem is that the the standard specifies how the system should work and how it should interface with with uh, and, and operate, but it it doesn't. The user interface is not not part of the standard, and so different countries have implemented it differently, and so you you go to a a French terminal and it looks and feels different from a German terminal and, and um, so so ease of use I think yeah is is always absolutely crucial to getting users to accept and buy into use of the system and, and making it you know making their life easy it's it's fundamentally important isn't it fantastic a perfect note on which to end thank you very much Andrew And we're back in the room for our final presentation of the evening. Over to Wendy. Uh, I'm Wendy Griffiths, Product Manager at Tarion Technology. So I started at Tarion Technology as a software engineer. And I've worked on projects with DSTL and MOD at looking how to secure data. As you've heard from Mark from DSTL and about in a military environment and how it can, how DCS can provide secure information flowing between nations and networks. 
And you might think, why is DCS relevant to my business? And I think it's very relevant because it has the potential to stop cybercrime or at least significantly reduce it. So a few years back, we were probably all working in an office with little option of remote working. And if you were out of the office, you probably had difficulties accessing the information on the network. There are more and more cyber attacks. And why is this? Well, there's a number of reasons. And one big thing, one reason, is COVID-19. More devices were issued and we were allowed to work from home. There's bring your own device. And this has created a greater surface area attack, attack area. And also, IT departments have not been implementing the, as many <coughs> monitoring tools and upgrading and patching remote devices. And also, the cyber crim criminals have got smarter, got better devices, got better software, and their main purpose is to find vulnerabilities in our systems. It's a big challenge for companies and IT departments as remote working has presented new security risks alongside the ongoing global security attacks we face. And these are just some of the examples your IT departments face, and it all comes at a huge cost to the UK economy. And it's not all about the external guys. Unfortunately, there are unauthorised reported unauthorized use of computers or network by staff. But I believe working at home and bringing your own device is here to stay. And network security alone is not protecting our data. So we need another approach. Data-centric security is able to encrypt our data. So even if a bad actor gets access to your data, they won't be able to read it. And there's attribute-based access control. So before being able to access a document, the user is authenticated and authorized. This may sound familiar with zero trust architecture, but it's also a key, key, it's also key to DCS. DCS checks the attributes of the user, and it's not just username and password. It can check attributes such as device health, location, time of day, and all these attributes go to make a decision as to whether the user is granted or denied access to a file. For example, a user could only be allowed to access files on their work laptop between the hours of 9 to 5. And then there's monitoring tools, which we've talked about briefly, but all access to files are logged by DCS, whether granted or denied. And these log files aren't much use on their own, but if consumed by a security information and event management tool, then the company can start building a picture of their staff use and behavior. And these tools can consume other logs so that it is able to recognize potential security threats.
so you can start spotting those hackers who are trying to access your files in the middle of the night on a high-powered desktop. So not only do you have to be, deal with the bad guys from inside and outside your company, you also have to conform to regulations. Most of us have heard of GDPR and the need to protect personal data in our companies. And British Airways and Marriott <coughs> Hotels have both been fined £20 million over data <coughs> breaches. DCS can, can protect our personal data by encrypting the data and checking the attributes, so only allowing the right users access to the, the data at the right time, and also by using a monitoring tool to check for unusual behavior. And that's not all DCS can offer in helping you to conform to regulations. It can also help with the retention lifecycle. GDPR say that you should only keep the information as long as you need it. So every file should be, could be kept for one week, two years, six years, or permanently. DCS is able to hold retention a retention period, and it's metadata. So you could potentially have an automated process that looks at these files and flags them when they're near the end of their retention period. And then they could be reviewed and deleted or reset. And the retention period, the retention of data is not just a regulation issue, it's a climate issue. 2% of the world's energy resources is used to maintain data that is unlikely to be accessed. And this is set to rise by 20% by the year 2025. If data continues to expand this way, then I can see there'd be new regulations and fines coming into force to control the growth. These are the key benefits of using DCS, and I have only touched briefly on enhanced security. DCS is an approach, not an out-of-the-box solution. We believe that DCS is a must for all businesses in the public or private sector to protect our data, conform to regulations, and even saving the planet. If you think your business could benefit from DCS, then we would love to hear from you as we're working with Plowshare to find our first DCS adopters. And also, we do have a white paper available, or coming soon, and if you would, <laughs> and with much more detail, and if you would like a copy, then please email me. Right, and <laughs> thank you for listening, and if you've got any questions. Thank you very much, Wendy. Nice and succinct. Well, well within the time as well. Um, just a reminder to everyone online, uh, do get your questions into Wendy via Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb29. If you're not already on that page, I'm going to be saying that web address in my sleep tonight. Um, but I will come to the audience here in the room for the first question. So who would like to ask the first question of Wendy? I've got a question over there. 
Uh, thank you so much, Isabella Wilkinson from Chatham House. I'm in the cyber policy team there. So I think we've seen through your presentation and the presentations of other experts today that learning and reporting is key to develop a strong DCS model, something that's resilient. My question is, and sorry if it's a little bit convoluted, how can we approach refining and continually developing and improving the resilience of DCS models, giving existing low levels of cyber incident disclosure, particularly among organizations in the private sector? For example, if there's been a massive data breach that hasn't been fully or accurately reported, how would you kind of approach this and how would you seek to incentivize organizations to fully disclose in order to improve the resilience of DCS models? I hope that makes sense. <laughs> well, that's a long question. Um, and probably a very good one, if I can remember it all. Um, so, yes. <laughs> I think we are still at a research stage. We, we're learning about DCS. We, we have worked with MOD and DSDL in how we can look at this. And <laughs> I'm really struggling with your long question, I'm sorry. And, and so refining it will take time. Um, and that is why we're looking for somebody to work with a company that will help us understand how they want to use it outside the MOD. Um, and I think it is, yeah, just ongoing. I mean, when it's an approach, not an out-of-the-box solution. So it, it's, <laughs> we're learning as well. And if I can ask a quick follow-up to that, what does that sort of next step of working with a partner look like? What does that sort of collaboration entail um, to sort of implement uh, what you've been researching? Well, I think we've, we've got the concept demonstrator. We know that we've worked with the interoperability um, and we would like to find an adopter um, to give us their perspective and how they see it working because um, they might they might want something different um, so it's working closely with what other people want and how they they want to work with that yeah great thank you uh, let's come back to the room Next question. Hands up if you've got a question for Wendy. Got one down here. Um, I guess, uh, sorry, Matt Curlow from Cabinet Office. Um, one of the things you talked about was sort of the, the, the sort of rise of obviously bring your own device and remote working and, and sort of one of the things you sort of said about the attribute control is like only if you're in this particular location or et cetera. So I guess there's a, there's a piece which also speaks to other presenters is to what extent does a DCS approach sort of almost, it requires sort of an always on mindset, like you're always connected to a server or to the internet, et cetera. If, I, if I'm at home and suddenly my Wi-Fi goes down, does that mean I'm no longer able to like work on my file or whatever, um, I guess is the question. Yes, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I, yes. <laughs> um, there is, because I've been working on something where something similar happens and, and people need to work offline. It, it, it's a fact. And it, it's go, it would have to be a matter of trust, I think, for your employees. I mean, you can't protect everything. Um, you, you could be able to download what you need. Um, and that is going to get logged. 
um, but then it is outside the control of DCS and the company is just going to have to trust its staff and employees to work how they would normally work because you, you don't want to be changing how people work because people will just find a work, they'll work around it anyway and find some way. So you might as well be honest and say, you know, you can take that away, but please don't put it over the internet or whatever. <laughs> Uh, the next question uh, from Anonymous, surprise, surprise, uh, follows on quite nicely from that, which is, what are the existing barriers to DCS adoption? Is it mainly reluctance to change? Right. Um, I think it, it is change. Um, people probably don't really know or understand what it is because nobody is really using it out there and it's only with research from MOD and it's like maybe that that doesn't mean much to me. Um, so, yeah, um, the cost, yeah, it's a, an unknown. Great, thank you. Uh, let's take another question from in the room. We've got one here. Richard, Richard Evans, Marylebone Executive Search. I'm compl a complete non-techie. Lot of this has been jargon, but I can understand it. That's not you, but your colleagues. But you want an example. Look at the inefficiencies of the police service around the country. They don't talk to each other. So my question is, as we're here at the Institute for Government, is this about changing institutions? You've talked about people bypassing systems. What's the relationship between what you're talking about and the relationship of civil institutions, if you get my meaning. Is oh. it about structures? <laughs> Is it about people? I mean, I know one or two people in government departments who send information to the cabinet office and say the cabinet office hasn't got a clue how to interpret it. Is this about people? Is it about systems? Is it about structures? <coughs> And I'm not putting him on the spot at all. <laughs> Genuine question. Thank you very much. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we are trying, we realise with the police that there are, you know, it, sharing data isn't easy. And, and it's something that we're trying to help with, or, you know, we're trying to talk to people in the right places. But it, it's, people are, well, we're working and it's very difficult to talk to the right people and, and to get to somebody who says, yes, we need to do this and then agree with somebody else and to get them together. It, it is a, a big challenge. And I mean, I haven't been working on this for very long, but Guy, who's sitting behind you, um, <laughs> who maybe you can have a chat with afterwards, will we'll definitely tell you much more about the issues. Uh, we've got time for one quick final question, which I will take from the room. If anyone has a hand that they want to put up. Otherwise, I'll be, I'll, you, you'll make me ask one. Nobody wants that. Uh, we've got one there. Hi, my name's Duncan from Telstra. I'm curious about the, the statistic that goes from 2% of data is unused or to 20% in just a few years. It seemed very quite a lot, but I'm fascinated by it. So I wondered if um, you could talk more about that. And I'm, 
I'm one of these people, I'm quite good at deleting emails, for example, but I know there's a lot of people I work with who never delete anything. And, but even then, I realize that even if you do delete it, someone's keeping it somewhere. So yeah. be interesting, interested yeah. in how that would work. Well, apparently, I mean, it's, um, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, because, <laughs> um, well, lately, the, the data centers have been very efficient, and they've been able to keep up with the growth. But there, there comes a stage where we can't be as efficient and, and just the data, we can't cope, so it will just grow and grow because there, there just has been more data, but we've, the way we've been able to hold it has been more efficient. So, I mean, it is just an estimate, but I think, you know, <laughs> I don't think we're going to all start deleting data and, you know, it's, we're, gonna, we're just going to get more and more. So more and more data, something to look forward to. <laughs> Wendy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So, conscious that I am the only thing holding our physical audience uh, between, well, drinks, um, and, I mean, virtual audience, I'm making no judgment whatsoever, so I'll keep these parish notices fairly short. Um, do keep an eye on the Institute for Government website uh, for all of the developments in the local elections and Northern Ireland election as well. Um, you've, you've seen the link on the slide to Tarion's white paper, so do get in touch with Wendy if you want to know more about that. There are also some uh, links from Ploughshare on the Slido and hopefully from at IFG events on Twitter as well. Uh, if you've enjoyed tonight's Data Bites, please do come back to Data Bites 30 which will be on the 8th of June, uh, so again, Wednesday at 6pm. The IFG has also got lots of events coming up on levelling up, the Foreign Office and DFID merger, and an event with the North of Tyne Mayor. And all that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you for coming, and all of you for joining us online, and for some great questions as well. To Ploughshare for supporting tonight's event. I must say I've worked in and around government data for a long time. It's really unusual for us to get to such an insight uh, into something, you know, something quite new, something quite different, uh, and everything that we've heard about defence this evening. And please do join me in a very large round of applause for our four excellent speakers this evening. Good night, and may the force be with you.